and all of the BLG teachers that for the next two weeks, we're going to teach on tithing, okay? So if I see a lot of empty seats here next week, <laughs> I know where you live. I'm keeping records. Remember, I'm from New Jersey originally. We keep records, we don't forget. But so I'm going to be, I'm going to spend next week and the week after on tithing. I'm going to teach you everything you possibly could ever want to know about tithing. Your head is going to explode. But you will then have a very solid uh, spiritual theological basis for tithing. And then the Lord will put, it, you on, put it on your heart. Uh, while I'll be doing this, Hayes will be doing, doing the same thing in church. So he'll be doing it probably over uh, the same period of time, maybe one week further on. Uh, I was given the choice I could do up to four weeks on tithing, and I chose the two weeks. I just thought you would probably want me to do that. It was, I just, I feel like I know you well enough now that I've, I've got a hunch. But so somebody said to me in the early class, ooh, after I announced it, he goes, ooh, there's going to be a lot of empty seats here next week. And I said, no, they're not. No, they're not. Because, God, you know, listen, whatever we have, whatever God has given us in the end, it's all his. It's all his. You're focusing on 10%, 15%, folks. It's his. When he calls you home, what are you going to do? Let me take it down to the cemetery? I mean, seriously. I mean, really. It's like my father used to say, I never saw an armored car in a funeral procession. <laughs> right? I never saw an armored car in a funeral procession. And you know, it's like this. Some people, their whole life, it's like this. Right? And then the day they're called home, it's like this, right? So the, the bottom line is we're going, to focusing, we're going to focus on tithing. We're going to go through and give you very solid spiritual basis for this. So you, anybody ever answers that, asks you that question again, you will know so much about tithing that they'll, they'll just say, wow, where did these people go to church? Amen. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Our brothers Paul. Silas and Timothy on their missionary trip. And now, just to go back a little bit so we have some context, and now they're out there and they, they run into the slave girl who has the spirit of divination. She is a fortune teller. And apparently she's good. She's good. When she tells fortunes, they're accurate. They're accurate. And you know why they're accurate? Because she's demon-possessed. Because Satan and his demons major in the occult arts. That's their deal. That's what, they're, that's what they do. And any, of, any Christian who dabbles in fortune-telling, in Ouija boards, in any of these issues that relate to the occult arts, folks, you are walking on dangerous ground. It's as if you're walking in Satan's house. You want to go as far away from these things as you possibly can. I've talked to you about that before. I'm telling you, I feel very strongly about these things. I'm not a legalist. I'm not a person that specializes in saying, do this and don't do this. I believe the leading of the Holy Spirit is what's important in our lives. But this is one thing that I can tell you fundamentally. God has made it very clear to you, don't get involved. And you see what goes on here. You see how important this is, uh, involving these occult spirits. And so beginning with verse 16, in Acts chapter 16, 
Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. Yes, she earned a lot of money because she was accurate. And she was a money maker. And what you're going to see now in Acts is you're going to see the juxtaposition of Christianity, of Christ, and money. And you're going to see how Gentiles, in a number of instances now, come to blows with Christ and come to blows with Christianity over money. And what happens here is when they lost their money maker, they didn't care at all about this girl's soul. They didn't care about where she was headed. They didn't care about her life. All they cared about is how much juice can I squeeze from this stone. It's as simple as that. And folks, that's what the world is like. All right? That's what the world is like. And you're going to see that as we, as we continue with this, with this story. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Why would this demon acknowledge God? First of all, somebody asked me in the prior class last week, are demons, uh, are, are they possibly human, human spirits? No. Demons are not. Very simply, there was an angelic revolt. You can read about it in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. There was an angelic revolt because Lucifer, the morning star, was the single most beautiful created being. Created being, not God. He was above all the other created beings. He had unbelievable talent. He was, he was beautiful, and he had an extraordinary voice, and he had incredible musical talents when you read this. And he sat there right at the right-hand throne of God. That's how exalted he was. Uh, one of the commentators writes that he probably was in charge of praise and worship in heaven. That's how gifted Lucifer was. But no matter how gifted he was, he was a created being, and he had evil in his heart, and envy, and he was jealous of Jesus. He was jealous of God. And he aspired to be God. All right? He was raised up to, and exalted himself to be God. And in his exalted evil state, not only did he rebel, but one-third of the angels, one-third revolted. Think about it, one-third. And so in this incredible, angelic revolt that affected the universe, they were thrown out of heaven. And they were given earth as a place where they could have a domain. So earth is Satan's domain. He has, a, he has power here. He has some authority here on earth. And his demons, his angelic followers that represented a third of the fallen angels are with him. And so what you need to know about this is that Satan and Lucifer is not omnipresent. He's located one spot at a time. And, and it tells us in the Old Testament that he was uh, habitated in Babylon. Okay, that was his, it was locale. Where is he today? I can't tell you. We don't know where it is. But wherever evil is perpetuated in such a perverse manner, you can pretty much guess that may be the locale of Satan. And his minions, his demons, in various hierarchies are all over the world. Yes, brother? 
But his, his, his angels can be all over. Yes, his angels, exactly right. His angels can be all over, and they are all over, meaning he gives them, uh, his minions, domain in various parts of the world. So you pretty much every single territory of the world has got populations of demons. They're all over. And, and I'm sure that they report back. And that's why Paul said we battle against what? Principalities. You understand what a principality is? A principality is a government. A government. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with evil. Evil. Palpable evil. That's, that's all over the place. And there it was in that girl manifesting itself as a fortune teller. And so she's saying, Blessed, these men are the servants of the Most High God. Well, why would they say that? Well, first of all, Satan and the demons recognize God. They don't worship him. They don't, they don't obey him. But they know who he is. And so the fact that this demon would say, these are the servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved, in and of itself, is not astounding. What is astounding is that they would actually go on and say it repeatedly day after day after day. Why was that? I can speculate a couple of reasons. Number one, it would go to your ego. If you're, if you're a missionary and you're seeing someone that you know is effectively demon-possessed going, you, these are the servants of the Most High God. Whoa! They finally have recognized my talent. Am I right? Look at that. Even Satan knows who I am. Isn't, I must be good. I must be good because after all, they're recognized. You don't think that this would go to pride, that this couldn't give you an issue of pride. Of course it would. You know, you're, you know this, is, this is mankind's Achilles heel. Pride. It's exactly what they do. Um, but also the danger here was that people who would be brought to the Lord would somehow be confused and say, wait a minute, the Christian work, this beautiful work of Christ, this, this simple, beautiful work uh, of goodness is in some way related to, to demons? You could see how it would wreck the testimony. You can't, you can't link evil with good. You can't have one foot over here and one foot over there. And Paul understood it, which is why Paul, Paul then says, Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And so what we see is when people lose their ability to make money, they're angry. They want to pay back. So verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, please underline that, Hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Look, they're going to charge them with a law, a Roman law of propagating the Christian religion. But make no mistake about it. This was not about propagating the Christian religion. This was about you've taken my wallet. You've taken my wallet. Now there's going to be payback. I'm going to do a job on you for what you did to us. And so they dragged them before the magistrates and said, uh, verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. That was technically correct. 
Rome had passed a law that, that you couldn't come in and proselytize to Romans. But this charge, really, what took place here was not because of that. It was because Christianity had come face to face with greed, with money. And you see what happens when people lose that. And you're going to see this several times repeated again in the New Testament. And so in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they had been severely flogged. Please circle severely flogged. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, folks, if you were a jailer in the first century, and you were told, I've got some Christians here I'm going to put into jail, please guard them carefully. You had better guard them carefully. First of all, if you would talk to your fellow jailers and they had a convention, you heard some stories about generally Christians walking out of prison, right? How many times have we seen here? Peter, John, right? Going into jail, going into jail. They go in and about an hour later, they're walking out and preaching. So time and time again, Christians were going into prison and they were walking out of prison. Doors were opening. Prison doors were opening. It was an astonishing thing, but let me tell you something. The problem was, under Roman law, if I gave you the job to guard them and prisoners escaped, you paid with your life. And Herod Agrippa, earlier in, in Acts, executed, I think, about 13 or 14 men because they failed to guard uh, Peter and John in one of the issues that took place. So this was a heavy penalty. So when you were said guarding them carefully, you had better guard them carefully. Now, why do bad things happen to good people? You've heard this, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? You people are good. You get up every Sunday. You go to church. You're there all day. I see you. And yet I see, I know you got problems in your life. I know that. I know you got financial problems. I know you got health issues. I'm aware of that. All these things are, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, sister and brother, was Paul and Silas, were they good? They're working for Jesus. They didn't do anything wrong. They'd given up their lives and were traveling the world. And here they are, they're preaching Jesus. They take a demon out of a girl. They're, they're moving the gospel of Jesus. And what do they get for their goodness, for following Jesus? They get a beating. They get a beating. And not only do they get a be beating, they're put into prison. And not only are they just put into prison, they're put into the innermost prison. And I want to assure you that these prisons are not like federal penitentiaries that you see today. These prisons were effectively underground. They were caves. And so it was damp, it was cold, and it's dark. And they're in the very back end, in the innermost prison, where the most violent criminals, the most dangerous people would be kept. And not only are they there in prison, but their feet are put in stocks. Oh, brother, how can this happen to people who are following God? How can this happen? This can happen because God made an appointment for them in eternity. They were there because there was someone 
that God wanted the gospel to be brought to. The jailer. God had set up that appointment from the time that the universe was created. That this man would meet these people at that point in time. And if they had not been beaten, if they had not put in, been put into prison, if they had not been there at that moment, that appointment for that man would not have been met. And this is an important lesson for you because all of you are going through issues in your life. I don't know what they are, but I know a lot of it is not good. And a lot of it is health-related. And some of it is financial-related. And all I can tell you is I want to assure you, when you see this story and when you see how God works, God knows what you're going through. There is a purpose in your life. You're not in a pinball machine moving from the left to the right side. God is purposely governing your life. And there is some appointment that's going to be made in your life because of what you're going through. I don't know who it is, but when you're in a hospital and you're undergoing chemotherapy and you're sitting there and the nursing staff is watching you and the medical staff is watching you and they know what, they know what you're going through and they see how you act. You don't think you're preaching? You don't think you're preaching? And when they know your finances are in difficulty and your house is in foreclosure and they see how you're suffering and they know you're suffering and yet they see you go to church. They see you worship God. You don't think you're preaching. You're preaching to every single person on your block. You're preaching to people in the hospital. You're preaching to tens of thousands of people that you have no idea about because God is using these things in your life for the propagation of good and the propagation of the gospel. I want to assure you of this. This is something that you, we have to learn and abide in our hearts because otherwise we're no different than people in the world. You get up in the morning and you're waiting for the meteor to hit your house. <laughs> Think about it. And let me tell you something. You see what's going on in Japan? I'm going to tell you something. God is going to use this. The work of God is going to grow in Japan. I don't know how. But God will use this disaster. There will be Christians who will go to Japan who maybe would never have been welcomed, who will go to Japan and the gospel will be propagated. And there will be people brought to eternal life through this. So I want to show you why these things happen. This is an example. Because of this story, you see here, these guys are beaten in prison in this dark spot and yet there's an appointment made, and that appointment is with the jailer. And I'm going to tell you something else. That appointment probably is about other prisoners, and we'll get to that. Because I'm convinced it wasn't just the jailer and his family that come to the gospel, but I believe other prisoners in that jail, and we'll see why. Now, you get brought to prison. This happens to you. You're beat. You're flogged. You're put in jail. You got, you got a stock on your feet. How do a lot of us, how would a lot of us pray? Because Paul and, Sil and Silas are praying and singing hymns at midnight. At midnight, at the darkest hour. Praying and singing hymns. What would a lot of us do? Here's the prayer a lot of us would make. Oh, God, how could you do this to me? What did I do to deserve this? How could you do this to me? God, I followed you and this is it? Oh, God, oh, Lord. How, but now God visit a judgment on them. Punish them. Make them suffer. Don't kill them, but close. <laughs> close. 
I want them to limp real bad. <laughs> and you know that a lot of us would pray like this. Yes, brother. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's just unspeakable. It's unspeakable of what they were going through. And so you're in there, and I'm in there, and what would we be doing? We would probably, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, that's probably how I, would, how I would react. Frankly, my wife was with me yesterday as I was trying to get back to Port Royal. We had left our house to run a few errands. And on the way back, we got stuck in the St. Patrick's Day parade. <laughs> I can't, we, we, we basically could not get back to Port Royal. We had gone in like 10 different directions and, and gone back and I'm, I'm losing my mind and, and my son is in the car and they're actually making notes of things that I'm saying. <laughs> some of them, what, some of them, let me see if I can remember some of the best one. This is a godless day, this is idolatry worship. We are worshiping an ethnic background. St. Patrick is not in the Bible. What is this about? And obviously, I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. And I'm thinking about the fact that I talked to you about the Jesus fish on the back of your car. There it is. There it is. Which is why, if you give me one of those, they better have magnets on them, because at times like this, I have to get out of the car and take them off. I was going on and on about the people and the St. Patrick's Day, and this is a this has got to stop. And the point is, and, and I, I just prayed, and I said, dear God, what would I do in the prison? I can't, I'm, I'm belly aching about a parade. What would I do? I know, unfortunately, this is it. But you see, when you're under the Holy Spirit, when God invests the Holy Spirit, and when you are under it, how you can be in the darkest spot, how seemingly normal people would go, I can't, I, how can you do that? And there they are, there they are, praying, worshiping God, praising God, and singing hymns. This is an astonishing story. I mean, really, this is an astonishing story. And so, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Please put that circle around that. And the other prisoners were listening to them. The world is watching. The world is watching. How do these so-called Christians react when they get sick? How do they act when they have disaster? What separates them from the world? They talk a good talk. Do they walk the walk? And the other prisoners listened. And let me tell you something. When God shook that prison and the doors were opened and the stocks came off of everybody, and remember that, everybody, all of the shackles came off everybody and every door was open. Nobody left. Nobody left. Think about it. You're a pagan prisoner. You're a violent man. You're in that prison and the door opens and my handcuffs are off and I'm not out the door because the Spirit of God was there. Nobody was going to leave that prison that God didn't direct to leave that prison. I mean, you want to see the power of God? And I'm sure that these prisoners must have sat there jack-slawed 
with their with their with their jaws just astonished when they saw this power of God opening these doors and seeing the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated. And so as we continue, it says, suddenly, verse 26, there was such a violent earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Don't hurt yourself. Don't do yourself harm. We're all here. How would other, how would other people have reacted that were put in prison? Go ahead. Kill yourself. Go ahead. I think a bunch of them left. What, you know? That's how the world would react. Go ahead. Kill yourself. But how does a Christian act? Don't harm yourself. This is an appointment that God made for you and me. We have been set in eternity, and this is the moment. And here's the question. When God gives you that appointment, and he will, are you going to be ready? Are you going to be ready to say what you have to say at that time? And that's the lesson of this. Because I can assure you, going to come, there's going to come a time. And so the jailer, verse 29, called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Please circle that. What must I do to be saved? And that's the question that the world is going to ask you. And they may not even know how to articulate it. It may not be, what must I do to be saved? It may be this, I don't know where to turn. My life is a disaster. I don't know what to do. Everything that I've worked my life for is crumbling down. My family, my finances, my, I don't know what to do. That's probably how it's going to be articulated. But here, what must I do to be saved? And do you know why he went to them and asked them that question? Because he saw how they took the beatings. He saw how they took the imprisonment. He saw how they took the stocks on their feet. And he saw them singing hymns in the night. This wasn't a Billy Graham crusade. Nobody was playing just as I am. You understand? That's life. That's life. Nobody's out there playing just as I am for you. When you come to that moment and somebody at that moment knows who you are, knows how you live, knows what you stand for, and comes up to you and says, my life is collapsing. What should I do? Where should I go? What must I do to be saved? You see the appointment that God sets up. And look. Look at the answer. Look at the simplicity of the answer. Verse 31. They, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be, sa you'll be saved. I don't have 50 theological books that I can give you. I don't need to tell you about the foundation of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. I don't have to tell you about circumcision. Oh, I have friends back in Jerusalem church who would want me to say you must be circumcised. Then I'm going to give you a whole set of treatises on the Jewish dietary codes, which I expect you to live up to. Can you imagine that? Nothing. You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe in Jesus, and you must be saved. Amen? Amen. 
Amen to that. You see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is so beautifully simple. It is not complicated. We make it complicated, but it is so simple. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a master or doctorate degree in theology. You can be a simple person that delivers this message. If you're walking the walk, if you're living the life, because they're going to come, they're going to watch, they're going to see, they're going to know, and they're going to ask you, and you will have that eternal appointment set. And so, verse 32, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house, and so he brought other people in his house. And at that hour of the night, this is midnight, it's one o'clock in the morning, he's bringing people to his house. You think this man has been affected? You think he's been affected? It's one o'clock in the morning. And he's saying, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. Do you understand the significance of what's going on? It's the middle of the night. He's the jailer. You know, two hours before, three hours before, four hours before, he was involved in beating them, imprisoning them, putting them in stocks. And now because of that appointment made by Jesus, everything in this man's life has changed. You want to know if somebody's saved? You don't, I don't need you to fill out a card. All right? I don't need you to fill out a card if you're saved. Here's how I know you're saved. Two hours before you were beating me, and now you're washing my wounds. That's the evidence, the fruit in your life. I see the evidence by the way you live. I see how you speak to people. I see how you speak to friends. I see how you speak to your wife or your husband. I notice the difference in your life. I see how your heart aches for those who are persecuted. I see that. And that's the evidence of salvation. And you see it here. And so he washed their wounds. And not only now, not only he, but the entire house were baptized. So when you talk about household salvation, household salvation means very simply this. I'm the leader. I accept Jesus, and as the leader, I, I lead other people in my house to accept the Lord Jesus. My baptism, my acceptance of Jesus doesn't bring everybody along. You're not traveling on your father's passport. You're not traveling on your grandmother's passport. They were good and holy people. They're with the Lord. You've got to travel on your own passport. And so that's household salvation. And you see it here. And so... The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. Please circle filled with joy. Why? Because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. He was filled with joy because he knew from that day forward, he knew with certainty where he was going to be. There was no more uncertainty in his life. Yes, certainly he would, he would come against hard times. He would have sickness, but he knew that God would hold him forever in the palm of his hand. Joy, unspeakable joy that the world is looking for. And then in verse 35, it says, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But here's our brother Paul. He's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. Remember, God used him greatly, mightily, but he's not St. Paul yet. He's not St. Paul. 
This is the guy who threw John Mark off the missionary expedition. He's not coming. He's not going with us. He walked out on me. I don't want him. Get him off. And he and Barnabas break up because of that. That Paul, the same Paul, going through this, the same man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now is he? Now what does he say? They, oh, they want me to leave. <laughs> they want me to leave. No. No. No, I'm not going to skulk out. I'm not going to sneak out. I didn't do anything. No, they are going to escort us. Escort us. Kind of like a parade. <laughs> They're going to esc I want an escort out of town because I'm a Roman citizen. They should never have beaten me without a trial. Oh, he didn't tell us that before. Why do you think he didn't tell them that before? I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit inspired him to withhold that information because you see what's going on here? When he's saying, I want to be escorted out of town, what it is doing, that act is effectively protecting the church in this area because now people will say, oh, well, look, the magistrates themselves have walked these missionaries out. We cannot persecute these people. Obviously, there is an imprimatur of the government on what they're doing. Amazing how God works, how God used that moment. And so it's, it's an astonishing point. And, that, and, and I, no, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Yeah, you should be alarmed. That was a very, very serious offense. That was a capital, potentially a capital offense. And so it says, they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And Paul and Silas came out of the prison. They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. What a, a monumental story of God's will. How God is setting them up to meet this jailer. And I am convinced, not just the jailer, I'm convinced prisoners in that jail who saw that and didn't leave. I'm convinced that there were men in that jail who came to Jesus Christ because of this. Because how else can you explain singing and praying at midnight in the darkest hour? You can only explain it under the power of the Holy Spirit. Only under the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you've given us these words today. Lord, I ask you that you multiply it in our heart, that we meditate upon it this week, Lord, and that it grows every day. And now, Lord, I ask a special protection and blessing on these dear people. Be with them this week. Bless them in everything they do. Protect them. Put a wall of protection around them and their families. Bring them back safely next week. And now, Lord, we put all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all. See you next week.